0: Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with veteran New York jazz clarinetist Harry Scholar. We had a great talk about his new 2022 CD, Living Sound, The Music of Charles Mingus. Harry discovered Mingus early on in his life. This discovery would change his entire trajectory as a person and musician. This is what he enthusiastically celebrates on this new recording. He was born in Syracuse, New York, and these days he is a professor of woodwinds at Boston's prestigious Berklee College of Music, where he graduated. He's got a great story. Enjoy. Right on. Hey, thanks for taking a minute after the show. I appreciate it. Oh, thanks for asking. I'm really honored.
1: Absolutely, yeah, and I I love this Mingus album. Talk to me a little bit about... How did all of this come together for you? What was kind of the the driving force and how it materialized?
2: When I was a kid, you know, like many people, of course, you know, I
1: don't know that many people that
2: say I just had this golden childhood. I certainly did. You know, kept to myself a lot. It was really a pretty brutal uh, experience growing up. You know, I got into jazz, but one record that just spoke to me in a very different way was my first Mingus album, which was called Mingus Moves. I was just drawn to that. It, it was more like a family. It, it just felt very different, felt like, like almost like, I mean, I didn't think this consciously, but looking back at it, it was like that record was speaking directly to me. And I know that sounds a little cheesy, but that's exactly what I felt. Then later on, I'd seen Mingus live around 1975, probably at Syracuse University. And I remember walking into the student-run venue called the Jabberwocky, and the presence of Mingus was unlike anything I'd ever seen before, and certainly I've not experienced it since. Flash forward to a few years ago, I was, you know, teaching at uh, Berkeley College of Music, where I've been for a little over 25 years, and this is back to 2018, and I had and just a fluke accident medical accident and had a ruptured artery which just about took my life in fact by all stretches of anybody's uh thinking it should have it should have uh taken my life did not but it was a long recovery and i really didn't feel like listening to music or playing music even though i was you know very i mean i was doing an interim chair you know, job for uh, a number of semesters, but did not feel like I wanted to record again or anything. it was about a year and a half, a little, yeah, about a year and a half after that, all of a sudden, I just had this overwhelming desire to want to record. When I feel something that strongly, I usually just listen to it and do it. Went in to uh, speak with the new chair, which was Walter Smith III, Talked to him, asked him if he wanted to produce a recording, and he said that he would. Of course, you know, Mingus was the overwhelming feeling—the uh, right thing at the right time. I can't tell you more than that, except you know, maybe that was something lying in me for you know somewhere around fifty years. It Just seemed to be the the right thing at the right time, and a very different kind of experience because I felt that in a way things were turning around where, you know, we as a, a group w- would be able to celebrate Mingus. And it came out of Mingus in a way kind of having saved me when I was a kid. And I'm not saying I'm saving Mingus by any stretch of the imagination, but it just felt like it, was, it would be an honor to be able to uh, to put together a recording that celebrated Mingus' work and, and, you know, to share it with others.
1: So I guess another layer of this is that there's been a lot of things that have happened on planet Earth over the last couple of years, and things are kind of opening up, more opportunities to perform live and promote it. How does it feel to, to, to actually release this album right now? You know,
2: I, I didn't really think about that per se, but for me, I, I think in my own life, I mean performing and and recording and and listening it's always been you know i won't say the only part of my life, but certainly a driving force. It's more a sense it's like when i I watched Mingus play live, it was such an overwhelming sense of a good, powerful, mysterious kind of energy, and it just kind of feels like it's coming from the same place it feels like there are people out there who I know that people's lives have been changed by Mingus and I don't think this really is about me or us, not that we are not part of it. I really think it's about Mingus and I think that Mingus's approach to life and his honesty and his activism and everything that happened with Mingus's life, I think that it might perhaps mean a lot in the world now that you brought this up. I think that that's a really good point. I think it might mean even more for it to be released now with everything that is happening and has happened in the world.
1: So talk to me a little bit about growing up in Syracuse. I mean, I I know you touched on your childhood and and growing up and all of that, but who were maybe some other players that that really swayed you from the world of jazz? And why was it that you decided that music was going to be your path? Well, you know, when I was
2: a kid, even though my father had played clarinet in the 1930s, I had never heard him play because he had quit. My mother did sing and play piano, but that didn't really influence me either. What had influenced me, Joe, was this terrible kid in the neighborhood who was... We didn't have many kids in my neighborhood. So if there was a kid that moved in, they were automatically your best friend. And this kid just beat on me relentlessly. And he came to me one day and he said, I want you to come over to my house. I said, Harvey, I'm at your house. He says, no, stand by my house. And when I did, he put his hands around my throat and he squeezed and he looked at me and he said, my parents are making me play the clarinet and I'm not going to be the only one. So I went and I talked to my parents. I said, "Uh, I want to play the clarinet. So I played the clarinet in 1965. And had a nasty couple of uh, experiences with the teachers and, it, you know, had me in tears, humiliated me. And so when this kid Harvey quit, I quit, but I didn't tell my parents that I didn't want to play. So a few years later, they got my father's clarinet recondition and said, we have a surprise for you. You're taking clarinet lessons again. Again, I didn't want to play, but, you know, I started taking lessons with this wonderful teacher at Syracuse University named Doug Sawyers. One day he says to me, Harry, he says, do you like jazz? And I said, no, I hate jazz. I didn't know anything about it, Joe. And he said, that's okay. He says, look, I've got some Benny Goodman transcriptions. I want you to take them home and practice them. So I practiced some like classical etudes, brought them back. Played one horribly. He took my clarinet, popped his mouthpiece on it, and wailed on this thing. And I biked up to uh, Syracuse, probably the first shopping mall called Shopping Town in the early 70s, bought Benny Goodman's greatest hits, listened to it. And within a few hours, my dad came home. I said, I want to be a jazz clarinet player. And I never changed from that day. And I didn't have a lot of, you know, a lot of encouragement, uh, not from my friends, not from, uh, my family, really. I mean, maybe I, you know, but I think it was more so myself because even my parents had run into Benny Goodman when his car broke down and their car broke down. And they ran up to him and they said, Benny, our son wants to play clarinet. He wants to be a jazz clarinet player. And Benny scowled at them and said, Hmm, what do you think about that? (laughs) But in any case, one of the things that that was very supportive was they took me to see Benny Goodman for my 15th birthday at uh, the Rainbow Grill in Rockefeller Center in New York when I was, yeah, I just turned 15. We drove there. And Benny was just wonderful to me. I, I know he had reputation for being terrible to most people, but he was really kind and generous to me. In Syracuse at that time, there were some small clubs and many people came through. So it was a wonderful time to catch so many legends, people like Count Basie, Earl Father Hines, Marion McPartland, so many players. Yeah, you know, I mean, well, I take it back. My parents were, uh, supportive and they would take me to see these jazz players. That was, it was just like my teacher, Doug Sores must have known that this was something that was going to change my life. And it did. So I became just obsessed with everybody uh, that I could see. And the last part of the story was that, and excuse me for being so long-winded, but it's just my nature, is that uh, the day after high school, my parents told me to get in the car with a suitcase and a clarinet and didn't say anything to me and drove seven hours and when they stopped, they brought me into a basement and said, "We'll see you in a couple of months," and left me. And it turned out to be Berkeley College of Music, and it was a summer program. And I didn't know whether to thank them or call the Department of Social Services, but <laughs> that's how I ended up at the. That's how I ended up at Berkeley, and that that of course changed my life to to this day, where I'm 65 and and I love teaching there.
1: You know, the one thing is that you've been through a lot of experiences over your career. And I'm curious, what what have you learned on the bandstand that you try to instill in your students? What is it that you really want to give them, whether it's from specific musicians or overall experiences? What do you try to do? There are a lot of
2: things that, that come up, but I think one central thing is that it's a mystery. When you go and improvise, it has to be like everyday life. You cannot predict the right thing at the right time. So many variables. And if somebody's going to watch you play, if you're going to enjoy the playing, if you're going to play with others and enjoy playing as a group, I think it's paramount that we just be honest and take the experience for what it is and try to express the right thing at the right time. And if it's not happening, you live with it. When it happens... It's going to happen. You can't force it. You'll either hear something consciously, subconsciously, or you won't hear anything, in which case you have to let others run with it. But if you try to make it into something that's about you, then I think, in my humble opinion or not so humble opinion, we're overstepping our bounds. I don't really feel it's my place to wish that somebody likes what I do. I don't think that's my business. I think it's somebody's own business. And if they do like what we do or what anybody, uh, the bandstand does, I feel that it's because of themselves, whatever they've lived, and then it becomes more like a conversation between audience and the musicians because they've been touched by something they heard, but they hear it because of their own experiences and feel it in their own way. So you can... Feel like there's some connection, but I think that we just have to be. There's this a uh, great friend and and artist and professor at Berklee College of Music, saxophonist Jim O'Gren, and I remember him saying to me once, "Whatever serves the music." I think that's the way to uh, to live, and I think that's the way to go about, uh, you know, having some uh, integrity in regards to um, being expressive in this art form.
1: What do you like the best about being a professional musician?
2: It always feels, Joe, like it's a way that is so different to live than anything else. I love other ways of living. You know, I love Netflix. I love my family. I love my friends. I love talking to you. I mean, there's so many things that I love to do, but music is, so completely different. Even though if everything in, in our life that we hear is a vibration, that's, that's music to me. It doesn't necessarily come out of a tempered scale, but it is a vibration that we hear and we can find ways to put things together that do sound like music. And, and many times when we're playing music, it can sound like speech or, or many things in life. But emotionally... It feels like it's always winning, even on the days when I'm not hearing the music, like I may on other days. It's never a negative experience for me. It always feels like I can live. Walter Smith, sir, would hear me in master classes talk about living in sound, and I would, you know, that kept coming up. And it was his suggestion that I, you know. Uh, think about titling the recording living in sound that's that 's the way I feel and If you look at the cover, this wonderful uh, artwork by Dave Chisholm, you can see on mingus 's clothing there he 's playing the bass i 'm playing the clarinet, and around me are notes which were actually taken from scores of the uh, music that we we had in the studio, and he put those around me. And and that, you know, I mean, it's not literally like that, but it feels a little bit like that, Joe. It really feels like that's how I can be myself in some very, very critical way. I don't know what I would do if uh, I didn't have music to move through life with. I really don't.
1: I'm curious. You know, you've been at this for a while. You've lived a lot of life. You've accumulated a lot of wisdom. If you have a dream tonight, you run into your younger self from around the time that you were going to start playing professionally. You could give your younger self one piece of advice based on what you've learned over all these years. What would it be? I would say to have some hope
2: and talk to people, not just musically, open up. Because I didn't have many people that came to me for, you know, to be supportive. And a lot, so many traumatic things happened one after the next. I just didn't open up, Joe, and it was what it was. I didn't know any better. And I think that that caused so much hardship and just doubled down on my kind of attitude of, of being so introverted except for music and it wasn't until decades later that i started to seek some people to get some support and my whole life changed and it changed dramatically to this day i mean at this point in my life i have uh, my wife joanne and my children uh, daniel amelia gianna and my friends and, and so many people and, and myself, I can, I can gain solace within myself, not just musically, but in a lot of ways. So I think that I would try to, try to encourage myself, talk to somebody, have some hope. That's a hard thing, you know. Most of the time when I see people that, you know, have this kind of thing going on, I don't push. But I I try to avail, I I, I try, that's not the correct word, sorry. I, I try to, if I can, just be there to listen, any which way but loose. If I can find a way so that I can just listen, then it's not going to hopefully try to push them into any direction. That's not my intent. It's just so that they don't feel alone. And by the same token with music, Mingus did that for me. And when I saw him live, his presence did that for me. And that taught me something. And, you know, in the best of the best situations in life, I would hope that I might have some opportunities to be there for others in many ways, musically or any other way.
1: You know, as the world kind of wakes up and we start returning to things, you know, what do you hope we all realize about the power of live music once we kind of start getting back to the stage more and more from both the musician and the audience perspective? I don't know that I have that
2: kind of wisdom. I can just tell you that for myself, I would hope that I would never assume anything ever again. I would take every opportunity to share music and just really celebrate that. I would, regardless of if there is, you know, if, if the audience is interested listening, many times there are other things going on and that's fine. Uh, you know, it's, it might be completely appropriate, but still having an opportunity to play music with other musicians live and to play for others. Boy, when I got in the studio, did that feel like the greatest gift. I can't even begin to talk about that. As far as audiences, I think that, I, again, I can't speak for others. I don't have that kind of knowledge. But for myself, I think that being secluded, after a while, I started to feel like it was normal. And even though we were all doing the best we could, you know, teaching online and getting used to being by ourselves. You know, it just wasn't something that was what we really wanted or what I really wanted. I had gotten used to it and didn't realize after a while how much I was missing out. So I would hope that whatever happens in life, I don't miss an opportunity to see somebody live that I could have. I don't miss an opportunity to play live when I could have, and I don't have... I don't miss an opportunity to think about different ways to reach people with the music, whether it's recording, whether it's, in this instance, uh, talking with you and reaching audiences and connecting in that way. Any possible way of, of sharing time ear-to-ear, eye-to-eye, heart-to-heart, both with present musicians future musicians and all the artists of the past i think are as alive if they had something that they said that was creating an impact that was out of truth they will always be alive and we felt that in the studio and i can't speak for the others but my my own vibe my own sense was that we all felt mingus there And when I listen to this recording, I really feel blessed that we had this opportunity to record this because I I can hear Mingus in the sound and living in the sound.
1: So everyone has a perception of you, your family, your friends, your fans, your students, but ultimately you live your life. You have a perception of you. Who do you think you are?
2: Well, I try to keep in mind all the things that need work, and there are a lot of them. At the same time, I feel very blessed to have survived certain things, occurrences in life and literally to be, to be breathing and to be here. Who I am in many ways I don't think is my place to say. I hope that I can lead a life where mistakes and all that ultimately ends up being one that is more positive than negative. And that's a goal. I remember saying something to my father once where he wanted me to do something in his later years. And I said, Dad, I said, that's impossible. And he said, yeah, it probably is. But it's still a good goal to have. I, I regret that I didn't tell him how much that means to me today because all I can do is try to figure out where can I be alive today what opportunities can I keep from missing and try to have that goal? Ultimately, I don't really know who I am. I would hope that I would do the best that I could and that I rise to the occasion and do my best more of the days of my life than not and then leave it where it's going to be and, and hope that I
1: led a good life. Hey, man, this has been great. I really appreciate you opening up about the album, about your life and music. Harry, it's been a pleasure. Thank you.
2: Oh, Joe, it's been an honor and a privilege. It's such a joy. I'll continue listening to you and your show,
0: and thank you so very much. Thanks for listening and tuning in to another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York City, Boston, Kansas City, and spots all over the globe giving fans all that jazz. Thanks to Harry for his time, music, and story. If you want to hear more interviews go to famous interviews with joe domino in the itunes store visit Jazz at youtube.com and for everything neon jazz all the time go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com and everything joe domino go to joe and if you feel like it you can donate to the neon jazz cause there until next time enjoy the jazz my friends
2: Neon Jazz.